All right, we're in uh, James chapter 4. James chapter number 4 this morning, and we are talking about conflict, sort of a part two. Uh, Because last week we also talked about conflict. James 4, 1 through 12, talks about that topic, the topic of conflict. And it seems that this early church... Their conflict was over who's going to be up front, who's going to be the preacher, who's going to be the teacher. We get this from James chapter 3, verse 1, primarily. James 3, 1, he says, not all of you should try to get up there and be the leader, the teacher, the preacher, uh, because whoever's going to get up there is going to be under a stricter judgment. Later in chapter 3, towards the end, he says, who's wise and discerning among us? Who's knowledgeable? And then he goes on to talk about what type of leader to look for and what type of leader to Avoid. So in this early church, there's this vacuum of leadership. In this early church, there is nobody to get up front. There's not a lot of qualified people, rather, to get up front. So everybody's arguing over whose turn it is. James is probably in Jerusalem. These folks are scattered abroad. And um, there's a lot of problems and a lot of confusion. And so they're arguing over how to fix it and who's going to fix it. And so James in chapter 4 addresses conflict. And he starts early on in James 4. This is what we hit last week in part 1 of this text. He starts by talking about how the conflict that we can see oftentimes comes from a conflict that we cannot see. Right? The conflict with someone right in front of you might be a conflict with someone, uh, someone else in disguise. And he gives us three options. We hit two last week. What we talked about last week was this idea that, you know, you think you have a conflict with someone right in front of you, but really it's a conflict inside you. This is verse one, right? You got these warring passions in you. You got these these conflicting ideas. You want to be like Jesus, but you also want to be in control. You want to be helpful, but you also want to be honored. And these things, they battle within themselves. And that's actually really what's causing the conflict with your friends, your church members, your family. The war is inside. Their only fault is they're coming into orbit at the wrong time. Additionally, in verse 2, he says it could be a war with the one above you. Now, if you're at war with the one above you, spoiler alert, you're going to lose, and he's going to win. But the idea he hits in verse 2 is covetousness. He's like, hey, you're mad that God's not getting you whatever it is you want, popularity, prestige, being up front, the whole bit. right? You're worried about all that. And it looks like you have fights with these folks, but really you're actually mad at God. Your, your, your big issue is that God did not provide for you the thing you think you want, the thing you think you need. And so really you need to repent of your covetousness. You've got a conflict with God. You need to realize you're in a lose, losing situation and, and, and realize that it's really not the person in front of you. It's the person above you you need to deal with. He's going to imply today that the conflict that we can see might come from a realm we can't see, and that realm might be below us. He's going to imply today that not all of our conflicts with one another are really with one another, but rather they're with our enemy, the devil. And after he hits this point, he's going to then finally put on his HR hat. He's going to be HR for the church, and he's going to give us 10 imperatives from verse 7 to verse 12 on resolving conflict. The 10 commandments, if you will, of conflict resolution that should we follow, 
We won't avoid conflict or escalate conflict or prolong conflict or enjoy conflict. We'll do the Christian thing, which is to resolve conflict. And so we'll dive right in in verse 7, and we'll see James implies that a lot of the conflict that we can see starts in a realm we cannot see, and that realm is below us. Verse 7 implies this when he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? In context, James is implying that some of their internal conflict comes from the outside, that it is coming from the enemy, that the conflict in this early scattered church of Jerusalem that has been taken to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth through persecution, that the fighting that they have with one another is actually the plan of the evil one, the plan of the enemy. It is the devil that is tempting us to such conflict. And this is something for us to note, because here's the truth. If the devil can tempt this early church into conflict, then he could definitely convince our church to get into conflict. Remember, this is the early church. There are people in this church who literally saw in the flesh the bodily resurrection of Jesus. James is one of them. James didn't even believe his brother was God till after that moment. When after his funeral, Jesus appears to teach and preach to upwards of 500 people, some of those people are part of this scattered early church. They literally saw an empty tomb. They literally saw a resurrected Christ. And, and some perhaps were even around when he ascended before their eyes or when the Holy Spirit came down in Pentecost. These guys have the apostles, the apostles' signs and wonders if they can be convinced to fight one another, surely we can be convinced to fight one another. If the enemy can trip them up, we cannot be so proud as to think the enemy cannot trip our church up. It could be the enemy. Now, an old theologian, I believe it was C.S. Lewis, said that we typically make two mistakes when it comes to the enemy. When it comes to the devil, when it comes to Satan, when it comes to the demonic realm, we make two mistakes. First mistake is that we uh, don't blame anything on him. Second mistake is that we blame everything on him. This is true as well when it comes to the devil's role in our conflicts. Okay, a um, long time ago in our church, no one involved in the story is here anymore. Uh, though we love him, there was a guy involved in our children's ministry. He had an idea. He ran it by some other people who were involved in children's ministry. And he was really excited about this idea. He threw it out there. He was convinced it was the right idea for kids' ministry, how we should run it, how we should implement it. And the other folks involved in kids' ministry were like, I don't think that's a great idea. And this guy texts me and says, it's the devil. Right? The devil is trying to divide us in the kids' ministry. And I said, maybe, or maybe, it's a bad idea. Right? And if it's really a bad idea, maybe it's God telling you not to move forward with it through your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not all the devil. Sometimes you're just mad. Sometimes you're just selfish. Sometimes it's the flesh. Sometimes it's a you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, right? You didn't have your coffee. You, you didn't, there's all kinds, it's not always the devil. At the same time, it's not never the devil. 
Some of you were here, I think, for this. You might remember, I call it Dog Gate. Okay, a few years ago, um, we had a neighbor who's no longer in that house. Uh, great guy, loved the guy, had a great, ended up having a great friendship with the guy, but he had a dog and he didn't keep him on a leash, didn't keep him in a cage, anything, a, a house, anything like that. So the dog would run around everywhere. On Sundays, he'd be running around in our parking lot, and on a couple of different Sundays, the dog ran into the church. Only at Griggs, right? You ever been to church and there's a dog under your pew that's not supposed to be there? Probably not. Welcome to Griggs, right? True story, after a couple of Sundays of people like dodging this dog in the parking lot, we saw him run out to Poinsett. We told the guy like, hey, your dog's in our church. There was a couple of people in our church, no longer uh, a part. I think they were even visiting. They were never real involved or anything. But I, I remember a few folks took the dog uh, and they were going to take it, I think, to the Humane Society, but I didn't know, our leaders didn't know, that they had found the dog under the pew and were trying to get it some help, but it was their dog, right? And so they come in after service looking for their dog, and we're like, well, we did see it in here, but we don't know where it is, but other people knew where it was and didn't pipe up, right? And so there's this brewing conflict between us and the neighbor because it looks like we stole his dog, and kind of, we did, Right? And so there was someone who tried to handle that. Other people tried to handle it a different way. And I remember it was a conflict. And I was talking to one of our members after that, trying to call, like, get everybody on the same page and say, look, it was weird. Why is there a dog in the church? Nobody knows. Like, we shouldn't like, judge our church by how we handled this because there's not... Like, I, I went to four years of Bible college. They were never like, all right, here's what to do when the dogs come in. Right? Like, it was never... Like, we don't know, okay? That's a pretty random situation, lots of opinions on that. And I, I told him, I was like, hey, let's all just get along and move on. And I remember he was saying, um, very wisely, he said, yeah, you know, the devil can do anything to divide the church. He'll use anything to divide the church, even a dog. And when he said that, I thought, it's possible. It's possible that was from the enemy to trip us up, to get us fighting. Because, I mean, how weird is that? How unusual is that? Could it have been a temptation on that day from the enemy? The answer is it could be. It's not never and it's not always, but the possibility is implied when it comes to James 4, 7. This is also implied when it comes to Paul's writings, like in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. He says, you're not fighting really with one another, but there are, there are enemies that we cannot see tempting us, swirling up these content, conflicts. Something that we need to keep in mind. You're tempted to fight again with your wife. Think again, right? Are you listening to the voice of the devil? You're tempted to unload your anger on a coworker. Think again, it might be the devil. You're tempted to cut someone out of your life, as the young people say, to ghost them because things have gotten a little awkward. Never going to talk to them again, not answering the phone. Think again, that might be the devil. It might be. Two of Peter's conflicts with Jesus were the devil. Matthew 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, 
you know what? Um, just so you guys know, I'm going to head to Jerusalem. The priests are going to, the, the Pharisees are going to want to execute me. They're going to succeed. Roman government's going to be involved in this thing. I'm going to be on a cross. I'm going to be bloodied. I'm going to die. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. Right? You're not going to Jerusalem. You're not going to die. This is nonsense. You don't deserve an execution. And what does Jesus say? He gives him a rebuke. I call it the rebuke heard around the world. Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's quite a rebuke. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. He's saying, Peter, you're coming at me in this conflict. You don't even realize who stirred all this up. It wasn't you. It's someone below. Of course, the famous scene where Jesus is predicting Peter is going to deny him three times. Of course, Peter does deny him three times. That's quite a conflict. Where does that come from? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Saying, this temptation is not coming from your heart. It'll get there, and your heart's ready for it, and will comply, but the temptation's not originating from the flesh as much as it's originating from the enemy. What conflicts in your life could be from the enemy? And what do you do about them? What do we do with the conflicts? Whose origin point is from below? Well, this is where James does indeed put on his HR hat and he begins to give us the expert advice of an expert mediator. And you will see between verses 7 and 12, 10 imperatives the Ten Commandments of Conflict Resolution. I'll read them to you. One, submit to God. Two, resist the devil. Three, draw nigh to God. Four, cleanse your hands. Five, purify your hearts. Six, be afflicted. Seven, mourn and weep. Eight, turn your laughter into mourning. Nine, humble yourself. Ten, speak not evil one of another. Ten imperatives. Ten, conf- ten Commandments of Conflict Resolution. I want to take a second, you know, just to imagine, right? No, right? Nothing wrong with using our imagination a little bit. I mean, just let, let your mind wander and think about a home where these Ten Commandments are followed. I mean, think about a, a school, a workplace, a church, a nation. Imagine the peace we'd have. It's not that we'd have no conflict, but it's that we'd have resolved conflict. Imagine the security you'd feel rather than insecurity. Imagine the tranquility. Imagine a home where your identity is secure. Imagine a church where no one feels like an outsider, where no one is, where no one's conflict is mishandled, but it's handled biblically. I mean, just the, the, the trust we would have with one another, I mean, that would be immeasurable, immeasurable. Now, these 10 things are quite a list. Right? You're probably not going to memorize them real easily or, you know, follow them, you know, real consciously because there's 10, right? 
And that's a lot to chew on. That's a lot to remember. And as much as I wanted to preach a 10-point sermon this morning, I thought, well, we do have to do the 1045, so that's going to take a while. So I thought, let me break these 10 down to something smaller. And I think you could easily break these 10 down to three mega themes. It's 10 imperatives, but really three themes, in my opinion. And it's a little easier to remember. What if we just did this? Draw near to God. Approach one another humbly. And don't judge the heart. What if it was just those three? What if that's how we handled conflict? This is James' wisdom sharing the wisdom of big brother Jesus on conflict resolution. Draw near to God, approach each other humbly, don't judge the heart. Verse 7 and 8 say to draw near to God, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 7, again, submit to God, resist the devil. Speaking in the Greek, this is military terminology. Submit is what you do to the commander. You, you don't make suggestions or edits. You don't have a bullet point uh, outline on why he's wrong. You just do whatever he says as if your life depends on it because you're in the middle of war. He sees things you don't see. Resist is the idea of stand your ground. We're standing our ground against the evil one, the enemy. Say, man, that sounds pretty obvious. Submit to God, resist the devil. Yeah, that seems right. Why is that even worth writing? I figured we would know to do this. Well, you have to remember, he's writing at a time where battle was much different. Battle was much different. I mean, when you're in the middle of thousands of people doing hand-to-hand combat and everybody's soaked in blood, you can't see the color of their jersey, if you will. It can be hard to figure out who's on my team, who's not. When you're in conflict, it can be really hard to tell. Who's on my team? Who's not? What am I really fighting for? Who am I really fighting against? See, conflict comes with a lot of emotion. And emotion's not bad. Emotion's good. But too much emotion and you're blinded to reality many times. Not every time, but many times. And when you're blinded because of emotion, all of a sudden... You can't remember, you can't see clearly who you're fighting for, who you're fighting against. And a lot of times in conflict, we want to swap this verse. We want to resist God and submit to the devil. So he has to clear that up. He says, you're going to forget in conflict whose team you're really on and who's really on your team. You're going to forget in conflict whose plan you're trying to follow and whose plan you're not, who's God and who's Satan. You're going to forget. So he reminds us, right? You're going to forget that the Bible does not call you to prove people wrong. It calls you to treat people right. That that the call on your life is not to make a good point. The call on your life is to make disciples. You can't do that without submitting to God and resisting the devil. It can be really hard to find him in the middle of a conflict. But there's good news. If you want God, he's not hard to find. Jesus said, ask, you'll receive. Seek, you will find. In the Old Testament, you'll search for me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You can find him. He says in verse 8, draw nigh to him. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. What an incredible verse. Beautiful. I mean, glorious, this promise. 
Draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to you. That's an anchor for our souls. Now, I do want to be clear on this verse because it can be kind of tricky. And I've heard it, and I, and I love all preachers who preach the gospel, but I have heard it a little off. Okay, James is not writing a book about doctrine. He's writing a book about practical Christian living. He is not, in this verse, speaking theologically. He's speaking experientially. It's clear from the text of the letter and the context of the letter. Okay, there is a theological sense in which you can't draw nigh to God any closer than Jesus has brought you to God. You can't add to the blood of Christ and get a little closer, a little closer to God than Jesus already ushered you into the kingdom, right? His blood is the all-sufficient saving power. His blood is what gets you to the Father. No, nothing you do can do that. This, this, is not, this verse is not speaking judicially. I've heard people use this verse to say things like, something like, you're as close to God as you want to be. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is you don't want to be close to God, so God came as close to you as possible. And God shed his precious blood so that you could be involved with him in the Trinity. God brought you in. And God filled you with the Holy Spirit. You can't get closer than that. And God said he'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's God, right? God who brings us close to God, not us who brings us close to God when we're speaking theologically. However, experientially, you can feel really far from God. Anybody ever felt that? Right? Doctrinally, you know that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. But in conflict, you're like... Where'd he go? Everybody's against me. People are saying bad things about me. People are falsely accusing me. I can't find this guy anywhere. He said he filled me with the Holy Spirit. I feel empty. This is what James is talking about. He's not talking about the doctrine of our salvation in this book. He is talking about our experience and sanctification. And the idea is that sometimes in the midst of conflict, it feels experientially, not in your reality, theologically, but experientially like God's a million miles away. And this is what he's speaking to when he says, I know right now you lack clarity, you lack comfort, you lack consolation from God. Draw near to him. Clarity, comfort, consolation will come. You draw near to God, he draws near to you. You set your mind on things above. You come to the Father. You open your mouth and he will fill it. You want God? You got him. You want to experience God? You can. You say, well, how do I do that? How in the world do I draw near to the Father? Well, he tells us. He says to confess your own faults and your own sins. See, many times the reason we feel far from God is we're trying to come to God by confessing their sins against us. That's not our relationship with God. He says, you want to come close to God, don't tell them about how unfair they're being. I mean, you can pray about whatever you want, but you also got to include something you might have done in the process. Now, there are times where it's 100% your victim. That does happen, of course, but many times that's not the case. Many times, the reason that we're feeling so distant is because we haven't confessed our part in the conflict. James says that's how you draw nigh to God. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. This is the language of the priests 
imagery these early Jewish Christians would have remembered well. Between the entrance of the tent of meeting and the sacrificial altar, there was a bronze basin. And when you're going back in between the two, the priests had to wash their hands. They had to wash their feet to purify themselves so that they could do ministry. Again, He's not speaking theologically. Nothing you really do can purify yourself. The blood of Jesus purifies you. But he is speaking experientially. He's speaking about something we need to do figuratively and intellectually and emotionally and relationally with God. We need to come to a place where we metaphorically clean our hands. That means get rid of the sin you're committing in the conflict. Repent of what you've done wrong, what you could have said better, how your tone could have improved. Purify your hearts, which means to examine your double-minded motives that you really don't just want to help this person see the light. You really want to win and crush them. Then once you cleanse your hands, purify your heart, you'll be ready to do ministry in this conflict, right? This is what he's saying. Remember, it's an early church fighting over who's going to be up front, who's going to be in charge. They're committing sins with their hearts. They're committing sins with their hands. They're double-minded. As they fight over who is going to be up front, those conflicts come from double-mindedness. In one sense, they want to preach for God. In another sense, they want to crush the church for not letting them preach for God. I would say that's double-minded, I'm here to serve, and if you don't let me, I'll kill you. That's pretty messed up. They need to purify. He's hitting back to James 1. Double-minded man is unstable. That's why you're bumping into everybody, and there's so much conflict. You're not really as single-minded as you think. You need to purify your heart and get down to the right motive and let the chips fall where they may. You need, you need to cleanse your hands. I don't know what sins they might have been doing with their hands. They might have been writing letters back and forth, slandering one another. But they need to repent and put the pen down. Sometimes we need to repent and log off Facebook, right? Because we're slandering with our hands. And the idea is that to, to, to really resolve conflict, you have to be willing to repent of all that, to cleanse your hands, and, and, and to purify your hearts. Here's the application. When it comes to conflict, the first thing you're, you're going to want to do is go to the other person. He says, no, the first thing you do is try to get to God. Draw near to God and ask Him to reveal to you your fault in the matter and be willing to admit that fault to God and probably to the other person. Even if you're 1% of the problem and they're 99 that's still a percentage point that needs to be cleansed. Draw near to God. Approach each other humbly. Verse 9 and 10, he says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So he's, he's, he's giving them some imagery from the priesthood. Now he's giving them some imagery from the prophets. Right? More Old Testament imagery. So he's connecting with them in their roots. And he says you, he's calling them to, to, to mourn and to, to weep. And this is the exact call of the prophets they would have been familiar with. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, who we studied earlier this year, part of their preaching was to call people to mourning and weeping. 
The sin that's making you so happy needs to make you sad. That's the message of the prophet. Repent. The, the, the sin that relieves all your stress needs to become the thing that stresses you out. The, the sin that you laugh at needs to become the sin you weep over. You might remember Jonah going into Nineveh, and he says God's coming to destroy, and they appropriately respond in sackcloth, ashes, mourning, weeping. James, like Jonah, is going into the church and saying, you got some Ninevite blood in you, and you need to follow suit. You need to turn your sin that you love into the sin that you hate. You see, sometimes we have the wrong emotional reaction to conflict. So emotions are not always wrong, but emotions can be wrong. Right? Emotions aren't always deceiving, but emotions can be deceiving. We don't obey every emotion or react to every emotion because they can be wrong. Sometimes we have the wrong emotional response to conflict, don't we? He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning. Here's the truth. We talked a lot about this last week, the wrong ways we engage conflict. We avoid conflict or prolong conflict or we escalate conflict. But here's a way we haven't thought of yet. Here's a wrong way to respond. There are times where we enjoy conflict. A drama mama, drama queen, Honorary drama doctorate from Drama University. Believe it or not, there are people who love drama. I know for some of you, you don't understand. Some of you, and maybe it is you, but there are people out there who somehow enjoy conflict. They actually don't even care who's right or wrong. They just love the thrill of debate and winning the argument. Like sports, like chess for them is drama. They get bored when there is no drama. So they seek drama and milk it for all it's worth. And that's exactly who this verse is speaking to. You who get a thrill out of being the center of attention. You who get everyone to laugh at your opponent and their point with your oratory skills. You're able to destroy them and make them a laughing stock with your logic, your ability to put things in order, your ability to make a point. For you, you've, you love that you're on top of the controversy you stirred up. You need to turn your laughter into mourning. You need to reevaluate what you're actually doing by creating all this drama. See, one thing we gotta remember is drama is damage. You gotta, you gotta see that damage to realize it's not fun. This is a goofy illustration, but there was a time in my family's life, my mom, dad, two sisters, me, we go out to eat, and I don't know what, what spurred this on, but every time we went out to eat, all of us, all adults, by the way, would make those straw rockets, right? So you cut half the paper off the straw, blow out the straw, and shoot it at each other. For some reason, we just would do, I think it was my dad who stirred this up, but he would just try to hit one of us every time we went out to eat. And so we did that. And it was really no big deal, right? But one time, we were at Steak and Shake. Well, first mistake right there, but we were at Steak and Shake, got out my straw, took the paper off. I was about to shoot a straw rocket at my sister. And she wasn't ready for it. She didn't see it coming. She was like on her phone or something. She had been having a bad day already anyway. 
And somehow, the I don't know the aerodynamics of this straw or what, but somehow when I blew out this straw, it really was like a rocket. I mean, it was like shocking, just straight, like an arrow, right in between the eyes. And it actually hit really hard and startled the mess out of her. And then she jumps up like this, like drops her phone, and everyone around the table, of course, starts laughing because it seemed funny. But then she, in the middle of being startled and not, cries. And then all of a sudden, it's not that fun. But yeah, I think I'm done with straw rockets. I am 30. Not fun. Yeah, it was a good laugh. Not really. Same thing with drama. You might think you're shooting your arrow, and and maybe you think you're William Tell, like the old legend, and you're just hitting the apple off the top of the head. No damage is done. You're just freaking them out. You're just getting some laughs. You're just amazing people with your ability to win the argument, and it's just fun and games. Look again, and you'll see those arrows aren't going to the apple. They're going to the heart. There's damage being done. Damage is being done. And you need to turn that laughter into mourning over what you're doing to fellow human beings. That's James's message. James's message. Weep and mourn over your conflict. Now, the reason we don't naturally do that is because we like the feeling of exaltation. You, you realize people enjoy conflict because they enjoy winning conflict. It is a chance to lift yourself up above another person. And in the flesh, that feels great. But James makes this point. He's saying, no, 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 you lift yourself up and God can easily humble you. You know that's no problem, right? Don't you remember in the book of Daniel, there was some king he turned into like an animal? You guys remember that story? Yeah, God's got no problem humbling a guy. Not hard for, I mean, speaking of Jonah, right? Pretty sure he had three nights in the, in the hotel whale. He was vomited. I hate to vomit. I can only imagine being vomited. God has no problem bringing you down. However, God also has no problem exalting you. You, you need to be exalted? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to, sometimes you are right. Sometimes it does matter that you shouldn't lose the lawsuit, that the drama does need to go in your favor. To, to, it, there, there is a time where, no, 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 I am being wrongfully accused and I need God to exalt me. God has no problem doing that either. No problem at all. Right? Which is why James goes and says, hey, humble yourself and God will lift you up. You need to be lifted up? No problem. The only way up is down. God can figure that out. Just like he can figure out how to take you down, he can figure out how to lift you up. You just humble yourself and focus on him. This mirrors the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught this in a very unique way. Kind of got it from the book of Proverbs, I think. But he talked about going to a banquet. Back in the day, banquets are a huge deal. Where you sat at the banquet was a huge deal. The closer you sat to the host of the banquet, the more honored of a guest you were. Big deal where you sit. Jesus gives us just some practical advice. He says, when you go to the banquet, don't sit right next to the host. Because if you're not the honored guest, it's going to be really shameful and really embarrassing when he's like, uh, actually, your seat's down there. You're, my mom made me invite you. You can get a doggy bag and go if you want. I mean, And in front of everybody, you descend. 
Jesus was saying that's what happens to the Pharisees in particular, but others who want to act like they're the honored guest at every situation. They're right. You're wrong. They're important. You're not. He says, God has no problem. He is very capable to seat you down further. Jesus says, when you do go to a banquet, go sit in the last chair. Like you're, like, like you're just the custodian of the palace. And, 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 and if the host sees you down there and says, that's one of my honored guests, he'll raise you up. He'll bring you further up the table, and then in the sight of all, you will be exalted. We're honest in our conflicts. We tell the truth in our conflicts. There's no need to have uh, 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 fake uh, humility. There's no need to be self-deprecating or demeaning. But you can be humble and let God do the exaltation. You can make your case as right as it is in a humble way. You guys are fighting over who's going to be up front. And to get up there, you're trying to twist arms, make threats, blackmail people. Because that's a pretty terrible, sinful, short-lived way of being exalted. If you're called to be up front, don't fight. Just serve. Humble yourself. And God will get you up there in due time. Do not go into the argument as an opponent seeking to win. Be humble. Say, what's that look like? Well, go into the argument as a student seeking to learn. You go into the conflict and you, if you're proud, you'll make accusations. If you're humble, you'll ask questions. What did you say? Rather than, you said what? When, 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 when you're going into a conflict and they make a good point, don't be threatened. Be thrilled. Because you learn something about a relationship you have, about a relationship you're in. You learn something about this person. And you know what won't kill you? Saying, that's a good point. Nobody ever died from that. Never once have I made a hospital call for one of our people. They're laying in their bed. Now I see you hooked up to hundreds of cords and I say, Doc, what happened? They admitted their friend had a good point <laughs> in a conflict and kind of conceded that they might be right. It was all downhill from there. That's why he's suffering. When you go away from a conflict, there's going to be some difficult feelings and your pride is going to want to ignore those and deny those and humility, embrace those. That's turning your laughter into mourning. We should mourn to some degree about being in a broken world where we can't even have non-conflicting relationships. It reminds us that our only hope is our relationship with Jesus who settled our greatest conflict on the cross and that through his resurrection we'll rise again to no conflict forever. Third point, don't judge the heart, 11 and 12. 11 and 12, it says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. I mean, just imagine obeying that rule. That would help. Speak not evil of one another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and he judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver who's able to save and destroy. Who art thou to judge another? Now, let's just admit, this is confusing. 
This took me a couple of tries to figure out what is James trying to say. Well, let's start with what we understand. Don't speak evil of one another. That's plain as day. But let's ask a question. Why not speak evil of one another? This is the rest of the passage. He's saying don't speak evil one of another because most of the time, not every time, most of the time, the gossip you're spreading isn't even 100% truth. It may contain truth. It might be partly true. It might not be true at all, but it's not truth most of the time. It's rumors at best, conspiracy theories about a brother or sister in Christ. You are evaluating their actions or the actions you've heard about, and you are claiming to know the heart behind them. But here's a fact that will really help you through your relationships. You cannot see the heart. When you judge the actions of another and judge the heart, true story, you're almost 100% likely wrong. Because you are not God. Man looks on the outside. That's all we have. God looks on the inside. When you act like, talk like, speak like, you know the heart? James is saying, you're putting yourself in the place of God. Verse 11, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. It wasn't written right. It's not enough to prove the sin of others. I'll prove the sin of others. I'll tell, the law can't even show you how bad they are. I'll show you how bad they are. And if thou uh, judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's saying, when you judge your brother, you are determining that the law cannot prove his guilt. So you'll take it into your hands. Remember, the law is given to us to prove guilt. When you have to go around and tell everyone how guilty he is, you're saying you don't even, the law doesn't even touch it. Those 613 commands of which he's broken all of them, yeah, that's not enough. Let me tell you really how bad he is. I'll show you by my law. And when you go and pull that, what you are doing is you are saying you are the law giver. And here's the problem. You are not. He says, you're, not, you're, you're acting not like a doer of the law, but a, hear, uh, but a judge. And, and, and what he's saying is, look, I did say, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. Chapter 1, verse 22. But I didn't say, don't act like you wrote the thing. Like you're the spirit who inspired the scriptures. Right? You've taken this too far is the idea. You're acting like you're the lawgiver and we already have one of those. We already have someone who wrote the law, who fulfilled the law, who freed us from the law, and his name is Jesus. Verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Who are you to think you know the heart? Are you Jesus See, James knew Jesus. It was his brother. He knew the stories. Sometimes it was involved in the stories. He heard the stories firsthand. 
He knew his brother was the one who knew, knew the heart. There's a couple of stories you could go to for this. Classic example, Jesus is in a house teaching, lots of people around, no room for anyone to get in the house to hear. There's a paralyzed guy outside with four friends. They can't get in the front door, so they go up on the roof. They saw a hole in the roof, you know, got debris and all the stuff coming down on Jesus and on the people. I'm sure some people are trying to get out of the house. It's all dusty. Then down through that sunlit hole comes a bed with a paralyzed guy on it. And what does Jesus say? He says, your sins are forgiven. All the Pharisees in the house, they don't say anything, but they think in their hearts, this dude blasphemes. He says he can forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And then Jesus, and this would have been a trip, honestly. I mean, this, if there's like Bible theater up in heaven and we could see all this stuff, I want to see this episode. This would have been nuts. Jesus answers out loud the very question they were asking internally. You talk about reading my diary, right? You ever preach and you think the preacher must have been through your emails? Or your text, this would have been the epitome of that. Like, I wasn't thinking that. How do you know I was thinking that? I was thinking that. Were you thinking that? Did, did I say that out loud? He goes, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, rise up and walk. If I told him to rise up and walk, you'd have to admit I'm God. And if I can do that, I am God. So here's what else I can do. I can forgive you of your sin. And in this moment, we see Jesus has total power to actually perceive the heart. James's question is, can you do that? No. No. I think his point is even further taken when we realize Jesus, who can actually judge the heart, didn't come to judge, but to save wicked hearts. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hallelujah. He can judge the heart, and yet instead he was judged for your heart. So who are we to judge? Will the one who escaped their judgment really judge another? Will the one who needed bloodshed for their redemption really shed the blood of another? Will the one who made the son cry out to the father, why have you forsaken me, really cry out against another? You don't know the heart. But even if you did, have some mercy. Because the one who knew you, your heart had mercy on you. Do not assume you know the heart. Do not assume you know what they have been through. Do not assume you know how they feel. Do not assume you know the pain they experience. Do not assume you know whoever it is you're in conflict with do not assume you know all the problems that they are having and where their heart really is, and do not pass those assumptions on to others. Here's the deal. Conflict's going to happen. It's normal. 
Conflict in our church is going to happen. That's normal. What makes us abnormal and different from the world is not that we have conflict or don't have conflict. It's that when we have conflict, we fight to resolve the conflict. And we do that by drawing nigh to God, approaching one another with humility, and refusing to speak evil of one another as if we know their hearts. Again, let's just close with some imagination. The musicians are going to come up. Maybe Nathan can play for just even a minute as we bow our heads, close our eyes. So go ahead, take that minute to bow your heads and close your eyes as the musicians come up and just think what your life would be like. Think what your home would be like. Think about what your family would be like. Think about what your church would be like. Think about what this nation would be like if we obeyed the Ten Commandments of conflict resolution that James gives us in verse 4 through 7, 7 through 12. James 4, 7 through 12. Pray that, that God might help you make that a reality, that peace that security in your identity, that trust with others that you build. Pray that God might help you draw near, humble yourself, and keep this place and all the places you're involved with the judgment-free zone.